This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we'll be able to concentrate and to follow the argument of your passage today. That you give us uh, hearts which are willing to understand uh, the deep things of your plan for this world and to take heed of how we should live today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, right now in Singapore, there's probably someone who's buying Hugo Boss perfume, right? Or aftershave. Or maybe slipping on a Manchester United football jersey. Or buying an iPhone X. Putting on a tag Hoyer watch. Or uh, buying a Oakley sunglasses, right? Or maybe somewhere else in Singapore, there's somebody else who's buying a Donna Karen spaghetti strap dress, a Armani jeans, Ferragamo shoes, a Gucci bag, a Frank Mueller watch, and maybe a Chanel shades, right? So anyway, I don't know all these things. My wife had to help me with those. But in many ways, we buy these things in a way sometimes to give ourselves a sense of significance, right? I mean, not that, you know, iPhone X is that special anymore, but in a sense, when we buy these things, it is to make us feel, to a certain degree, that we are significant, that we are somebody. And I think in a way, it can make you feel special wearing these things or dressing up in this way. Not that we all have to dress like the people in Crazy Rich Asians or something, right? But in some sense, buying these branded things does make us feel special. But what if we are really special, but we just don't know it? What happens if we are really somebody, but it's just that we are unaware of just how special we really are? Now, as we look at today's passage, right, it speaks to this theme, but in many ways, it requires for us to really think through what is being said, because that is what is actually being communicated to us. Now, as we've been going through the book of Romans, uh, we need to see that what we're looking at in chapter 11 is a flow of logic, a flow of argument. So, Romans begins with bad news. Okay, So, the bad news of Romans is that everyone, within the historical context, the Jews and the Gentiles, but in present day life, for us all today. We are all sinners. Okay, We are all sinners. And the other part of the bad news which comes through in the book of Romans, next slide, is that because we are all sinners, it says very clearly that God will give us judgment. Right? God's wrath, that's what the, the thunderbolts are, right? God's wrath falls on both the Jews and the Gentiles. And in, in effect, to every single person living in history, including us today. Okay, so that's the next slide, right? All the different people today. But then the book of Romans then went on to speak of the good news, the good news of the gospel. And that is, Jesus, God's son, next slide, comes on the earth and goes to the cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice of atonement to pay for our sins and to take on board our judgment on himself on the cross. And in this way, the next slide, he brings us out of judgment into his kingdom. Now, as we come to chapter 11, it then poses a bit of a problem because 
in the ancient world, if I were to be in the church in Rome, and I'm not, I'm sitting there in the pews in Rome like today, and I'm looking around, I, I sort of see, hey, something strange going on at church. And what's strange is when I look around, I don't see that many Jewish people. Right? Obviously, when I look around the church here, there's no Jewish people, right? But if I was living 2,000 years ago and I went to church in Rome, when the letter of the book of Romans was written, there were very, very, I guess, relatively few Jewish people who were Christians. And that would bring forth an uncomfortable question. The uncomfortable question would be, why are there so few, so, so few Jews in the church? You know, what happens to God's faithfulness? What happens to God's reliability? What happens to God's dependability? Because after all, weren't the Jews God's people? Didn't God make promises to the Jews? So God had said to the father of the Jews, next slide, Abraham, right? He promised Abraham, He said, leave your country your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So as we look at this passage, the question then is, which we find here in chapter 11 verse 1, did God reject his people? God has made all these promises. God has promised the forefather of the Jews these promises. But now, why were there so few Jews in the church? Did God reject his people? And then Paul then answers, or God answers through Paul in verse 1, right? I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, you have killed, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. And they are trying to kill me. And God, what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So here, Paul answers the question, did God reject his people? And Paul says, no, right? No. No, because I'm proof that God has not rejected his people. Because Paul himself was a Jew and he was in the church. right? And he's basically saying, look, I am Israel. I am of the line of Israel. In fact, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm like the purest of the pure Jews. And here am I, a Christian. So it's a bit like, you know, someone comes up to you and accuses you of not being Chinese enough, right? Or, you know, you're only a straight Chinese, right? And you could say, you know, not really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from the original Han tribe. And, you know, my forefathers came from Beijing. Or, or you, say, you say, you know, my great-great-grandfather was Qing Wang, right? So... What is really being said here by Paul is that he is an, a Jew of the Jews of the Jews. And he is a Christian. So God has not rejected the Jews. So if God has not rejected the Jews, then what is happening? Well, he then looks back to the past, right? To the person of Elijah. Now, Elijah was 
shown to us in 1 Kings chapter 19. Okay, and in 1 Kings chapter 19, what happened was, uh, during this period, Israel had turned her back against God and they were worshipping the balls. Okay, not the footballs, but the ball, which was like the God, okay. So Elijah, right, uh, next slide, the picture. Okay, the next one. Yeah, Elijah basically called to God and had a competition with the, 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 uh, I guess the priest of Baal, uh, to do a test to see who would be the true God. And so he prayed to God and God, with a great show of power, sent down fire from heaven to set alight uh, the, the sacrifices. And now Elijah thought that as a result of this great miracle, this great sign from heaven, God's people would stream back to God. Right? The people would turn back to God, they repent of their sins. But that didn't happen. Instead, the opposite happened, right? Uh, they wanted to persecute and kill Elijah. So Elijah ran off into the wilderness. And when he ran off and hid in the wilderness, what happened? Next slide. He felt very sorry for himself. Right? He was sitting there in the wilderness and he was asking the question, I'm the only one left, right? Everybody's trying to kill me. Woe is me, right? But then God said to Elijah, not so fast, right? Because, the next slide, God said that together, sorry, it wasn't Elijah, it's not Isaiah, right? It's Elijah, right? It's the wrong person. It should be Elijah. It's a typo there. It's Elijah plus 7,000 people were God's elect. There were still 7,000 other people together with Elijah who had not bowed the knee before Baal. And what Paul was saying here is that at various times in history, God has a remnant theology. God does not promise that everyone will receive his promises and will be the elect and saved. If you look very carefully, the word elect is there, right? Only the remnant are the elect. So during this time, in Elijah's time, right? It was Elijah plus the 7,000 who were the elect. So what Paul is saying is in the same way, the next slide, in Paul's time, so was the same principle happening. There were many, many, many Gentiles who were saved, but there was a remnant of Jews who were saved, which was Paul and some of the Jews. But if you look here in verse 5 and 6, right, This happens not because they were good people or they were righteous people or they were somehow the people that were special. But in verse 5 and 6 it says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So what's happening if you click it, you'll see that actually this remnant comes into God's kingdom by God's grace. That means God is still control. God is the one who seeks and saves His elect by showing them grace. Now, 
not only does it work in terms of God showing one group of people grace, but the shocking thing is, the next slide, uh, uh, oh, okay, click again. Okay, the click again. Okay, yeah, this one, okay, click it again. Sorry, twice. But not only are some shown grace, but the shocking thing is actually God does the opposite thing, right? He doesn't leave them neutral, but He hardens the rest. So look at what it says in verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Now, this is really shocking because it's actually saying that when you ask the question, why were there so few Jews as Christians in Rome, it's not as if God had lost control. But it's actually part of God's plan to give some grace and to harden the others. As shocking it is in our mind, right? It's like, hey, so unfair, right? How come God, I mean, I can understand God giving grace to some, but to harden the other group, well, that's like saying that God is, seems to be very, like, dictatorial, right? It's like, you know, He just chooses one and rejects the other. And the language here actually comes from the language of the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy and Isaiah, right? He says, God gives them, some of them, the spirit of stupor. Right? So the next slide, right? It's like, they're sort of like drunk, right? They're sort of like, uh, you know, like very drowsy and sleepy, so that they, they cannot actually understand and accept what God is giving them. But more than that, in the next verse, in verse 9, right, it says, May their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs bent forever. Now, when we think of a table, we think of a blessing, right? The, the table is a blessing because usually the table has, is, is a place of food, right? But conversely, what is happening here is that the table, what should be a blessing to them, actually is a stumbling block for them. It is a snare for them, a trap for them. And I think what is actually being spoken of here is of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is actually like a, a table, is, is like a blessing to people. But for the Jews, especially those in Rome who, re, you know, who were confronted with Jesus, instead of being a blessing to them, it became a stumbling block. It became a, a snare and a trap which prevented them from receiving God's grace, but instead hardened them. Okay, so what was the question that was being asked again? Did God reject His people? And Paul's answer is, no. God did not reject His people because it is part of the remnant theology that God has. He has the elect, whom He chooses, He gives grace, and He has hardened the rest. So it's not as if Israel is rejected, it's just that the elect of Israel is chosen. But then now comes 
the subsequent question in verse 11. Right? Because if that is true, that God has given grace to some and hardened the other, others, then what is the second question? What is the logical question to be asked? In verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Okay, so the second question is up there. Did they fall, stumble so much on, on Jesus Christ so as to fall beyond recovery? And he goes on to this quite complex argument where he says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought, brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, now, even as I read a little bit, I can see you all like frowning and thinking, this is so complicated, right? This is so chim, right? It's like we should be doing a Bible study first before we, we come to the sermon because how can we understand what is being said? But don't worry, right? I'll try to make it simple for you. Basically, what Paul's argument in verse 11 to 24, with all the examples, is that the Jews rebel, salvation then is taken to the Gentiles, and when the Jews see the Gentiles being saved, they will be envious, and therefore, in God's timing, the appointed number of Jews will then be saved, and then there will be the glory and the resurrection day of history, the end of history. Now, Paul then uses two examples to show how this happens, right? So, you know, he uses the first one, which we read, an example of uh, love and romance, right? So, basically, he says that Israel are like sick and tired of God. It's like love gone cold. Like, you know, it's like, you know, you go to marriage counseling and, you know, uh, in the beginning when you saw this couple, they were so in love. You know, they were so in love with one another, then they lost that loving feeling. Right, it's like, you know, once they couldn't stop to each other, talk to each other on the phone for hours into the middle of the night, now they find it really hard even just to say hello to one another. Right? Uh, it's like someone was telling me, a uh, pastor was using this illustration once before, about how uh, they go to the reservoir for their quiet time, and then they saw this young couple, and like they're walking in the storm drain, they're laughing and joking. And then he said that, oh, you know, he can imagine that a couple years' time, when the, when the wife or the husband goes to the storm drain, the, 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 the wife or husband say, what's wrong with you? Ah? So stupid. Why are you going to the storm drain for? Right? Well, that's the sort of thing that's happening to Israel and God, isn't it? Because as we see in this passage, it says here in verse 11 and verse 15, right, that Israel rejects God. It no longer loves God, no longer values its relationship with God. And what Paul is saying is that in his ministry to the Gentiles, his hope is that when the Jews see the salvation coming to the Gentiles, they themselves will be provoked to envy and they will then come back to God. So I remember reading this book by John Grisham many years ago. And John Grisham is a really good writer and he wrote this book called Bleachers. And it's about this uh, football star, right? Who's, you know, he, was, he was the star of his school, he was the star quarterback, and he had lots of girlfriends. But he had the first girlfriend he ever had 
before he became very famous. But anyway, he gets injured and his life becomes a mess. He's got multiple, you know, relationships and his, you know, he's basically, his life has come a full circle. Now he's an insurance salesman or something. Then he goes back to his hometown. Then he sees his first girlfriend. But then the only problem now is his first girlfriend is happily married with a family. But then when he sees his first girlfriend, he realizes how much he loved her more than all the other girlfriends that you know came aboard when he became very successful as a quarterback. And I think that that's what Paul is saying in this passage, right? It's like when Israel sees the Jew, sorry, the Jews see the Gentiles coming to faith and coming to a relationship with God. Paul says that that is God's plan to provoke the Jews to come back into a relationship with God. But the second example that he gives is, is from horticulture, right? So basically, if you look here in verse 17, he, verse 16, sorry, onwards, he says, if part of the dough is offered as first fruits is holy and the whole batch is holy, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap, from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Now again, this is very complicated, but what happens is the root is actually Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? God made promises to Isaac, Isaac, sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Based on the root of these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Israel comes into being and receives the promises and the blessings of God. You understand where I'm going from here? So the root are God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the blessings that Gentiles receive are not based on the promises given to Gentiles, but it's the promises given to the Jewish nation, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what he's saying to the Gentiles is you shouldn't be proud because we are like a wild olive shoot which is grafted in to the Jewish tree which was basically formed by the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you think about it, hey, where's the tree gone? Ah, so if you think about the tree, right? If you visualize it, the tree itself, the foundation, the roots of the tree is actually Israel and God's promises to Israel. I mean, when you read half the Bible, the first part, Old Testament, is all about the Jews, right? And all the promises from which Jesus comes from are based on the promises given to the Jewish nation. So for the Gentiles, we are like the wild olive branches which are grafted in uh, to the Jewish tree. Now, obviously, we're not gardeners here, right? But, but, but it, trust me, it works, right? You can actually graft foreign branches into the tree itself. So what Paul is saying here is, you are only given the opportunity to be part of the tree because the Jewish branches, because of unbelief, have been cut off. Because you know, to graft a, a, a plant, you have to cut off the, the branch in order to 
graft in the new branch, right? So don't be so proud, right? Because actually it is because of the Jewish unbelief that allows the Gentiles to come into the tree itself. So the next slide. So that's what he's saying here. So now for the second half of the chapter, the chapter then gives us the application, which is the next slide. Next slide? Okay. So, if you look at this passage, there are three commands, three imperative verbs which are given, which is up there, right, I think? Yes, that's right, it's up there. So, what is the lesson for the Gentiles? What is the lesson for us here in Singapore today? It says... Uh, which is verse? Do I start from there? 19. Okay, good. You will say then, branches are broken off so that I could be granted in, grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble or be afraid, right? It says there in the original version. Be afraid, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, and kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, if you look here, this is the application for us. This is the lesson for the Gentiles, and we are Gentiles. Right? First lesson. Don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Because if you look in the other translations here, don't be boastful, don't be conceited. Because the temptation for us, as for the Roman Christians, is to think that we are special. After you've been a Christian for a while, we sometimes think, I automatically belong in the kingdom of heaven because I'm so good, I'm so lovable, I'm so special, God must love me. God gave me grace because He owes it to me. I remember an accountant friend of mine when I was still working, right? He was a very arrogant guy as a Christian. So he told me that his favorite verse of the Bible was, Be holy because I'm holy. And Credited, he was a very holy person. Just that he was a very arrogant, holy person. Even the non-Christians in my accounting office despised him, right? Because he used to be thinking he was better than everybody else because he was so holy, right? And I think that part of his problem was it became almost as if God owes it to me to save me because I'm so holy. Now, when you read this passage, it's trying to bring us back and say, wait a second, wait a second, right? You are just a wild olive branch grafted into the tree of the promises given to Israel. It's a bit like, imagine if there's a powerful family, right? And, uh, hey, actually I was watching this movie recently. Which movie was there? It's like a powerful, uh, um, uh, oh, that's right, Prince of Egypt on Netflix, right? It's like, there's a powerful family and... Um, you are just some orphan and you get adopted into the powerful family. Actually, you don't belong there. You're just an orphan. You're just a nobody. But somehow, out of grace, somebody brings you into the family. You are nothing. It's through the act of grace that you've been saved. 
So I remember thinking, you know, it's like when you go to the beach, right, and you see all the millions of grains of sand on the beach, right? What difference is it if you are just a grain of sand, right, and God removes a couple of other grains of sand and then He replaces those grains of sand with you? Is it because you were a very special grain of sand? No, right? You're still a grain of sand. You, it's like when you think of how we look before God, that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. Don't be arrogant. Because if, if the Jews right, were, were the original grains, right? If the Jews were the original branches, they themselves have been cut off so that you have been grafted it. Not because you are so special. The second application is, oh, you didn't do the pictures. Oh, you did that. Okay. The second one, next one is, be afraid, right? Be afraid. Why be afraid? Be afraid because if God can cut off the original branches because of unbelief, then how much more if you, as the wild olive branch, you can be cut off too. In fact, it's easier to cut you off than the original branch. Now, I think that this is such an important lesson for us. Because I've met so many people and somehow, somehow, they don't tremble before God. Now, we can talk another day about predestination and the perseverance of the saints. But I think a bit of trembling and a bit of fear before God is a good thing. Now, I've spoken to people and, uh, you know, there was a man, I remember, who kept looking at pornography. And yet, over and over again, he seemed to think that, oh, as long as uh, I go to church or whatever, I'm saved. But, if you look at this passage, if God can cut off the Jews because of unbelief, He can also cut off Christians, right, Gentiles today. I've met people who hardly go to church, who hardly ever pray, who hardly ever read the Bible, who in their hearts are very cold towards God. And yet they believe that God will save them. But if you look at Romans chapter 11, is it dangerous to have this sort of belief? Be afraid, God says. Because if God can cut off the the natural branches of the Jews, then God can surely cut you off as well. Now, I remember once I went to speak at a church camp. And unfortunately, I think after about the second day, the camp didn't go very well. Because we were having a question and answer, right? And then someone asked the question, Can you lose your salvation as a Christian? If you say the sinner's prayer, can you lose your salvation? So I can't remember where we're preaching all from, but my answer was, I said, that saying the sinner's prayer guarantees nothing. And I said that the Bible warns us that if you go away from God, you can lose your salvation. To which some of the people were very, very unhappy with me. Because somewhere along the line, somewhere they got into their mind that if you say the sinner's prayer, you will always be saved. And I think what also was the problem was some of them were elders of the church and some of their children were no longer going to church. But this passage says very clearly, right, 
Don't be arrogant, but be afraid or tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Right? If God can cut off the Jews who are part of the tree, then you who are grafted in, could He not cut you off too if you live in unbelief? If you, if you are living this way, then take to heart the warning that God is saying. Tremble. Be afraid. And in verse 22, the next slide. The next slide. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry. If you go back to the passage, look at verse 22. Very important, right? Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, I think this is such a powerful thing. How often do we consider the kindness of God? Right, so, you know, we consider many things. So I remember I went to the Grand Canyon. So, uh, oh, sorry, thanks. Can you go to the Grand Canyon pictures? So, you know, you go, you go to the Grand Canyon, you consider nature, you consider the, the marvel of God's creation, right? But I wonder whether we ever consider the kindness of God as an attribute, the kindness of God as a quality, the kindness of God as something that we have received from God. Because that idea is, is something that we should be thinking about as Christians, the kindness of God. See, look at what it says there in verse 30 to 32, right? Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God and have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everybody over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. See, the word that keeps being repeated is have mercy on, have mercy on, have mercy on. So, all of our salvation comes because of God's mercy and God's kindness. So, think about it. Meditate on it. Consider it. Now, my grandmother, uh, while she was pregnant with my mother, uh, was during the Second World War when the Japanese had first invaded Singapore. So, I don't know why she did it for whatever reason, but during the war... My grandmother traveled by train from Singapore back to her hometown in Ipoh. And uh, the journey that in those t- days was not the high-speed rail, right? Okay, It took like about five days, I think, according to my grandmother. And she was really hungry and pregnant with my mother. So she told us a story of how uh, on the journey to back to Ipoh, uh, a Japanese soldier actually kindly gave her a bowl of rice. And she always remembered that kindness that that Japanese soldier showed her. Now, if, if that bowl of rice had such an impact on my grandmother, then how much more the kindness of God in giving us everlasting, forgive, everlasting life and forgiveness? Right? If my grandmother considers just that bowl of rice and that kindness so greatly, then how much more for ourselves when we receive this great bounty from God. 
And that's why in verse 33 to 36, do you ever ask yourself, why did Paul decide to put a doxology in the middle of his letter, right? Why did he bother to talk about, oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and the knowledge of God and all that sort of stuff? It's because when he meditates on the kindness and mercy of God, he can't help but break out into a song of praise, to praise God for his unsearchable wisdom. Uh, like look, look at what it says there in verse 35. For whoever, who has ever given to God that God should repay them. Nobody, right? We, we've not given anything to God that God should repay us anything. But yet God gives us mercy. So I began in the introduction by saying, you know, we buy things to feel significant. We buy things to feel special. But actually, if you have the kindness of God, you are so significant and so special already because in the whole of eternity, God has chosen you, just a speck of sand, to be given grace and forgiveness. But the second half of verse 22 warns us that we need to continue in this kindness, right? Look at what it says there in verse 22. Consider the kindness, right? Therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, and kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also would be cut off. Now, what that means is that the kindness of God and the sternness of God are two sides of a coin, right? If you have not received kindness from God, if you are not continuing in the kindness of God, then the other side of the coin is you are in the sternness of God. So it's almost as if, uh, the next slide, the picture, right? The journey of faith is to continue in God's mercy and God's kindness. Receiving kindness from God is not a it's not a uh, moment-in-time event. It is a continuous event. It's not as if I, I, I pray the sinner's prayer, I receive kindness, and that's it, right? The kindness of God is something that you walk in day by day till the end of your life in belief, in faithfulness, in obedience. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard because sometimes in the busyness of life, we're too busy for the kindness of God. Or we become arrogant and we don't need the kindness of God. Or we're disappointed with God and our love for God grows cold. But the moment that you wander off this journey in the kindness of God, on the mercy of God, then, then you are facing the sternness of God instead. And that's a tragedy, right? It's a tragedy. So in conclusion, uh, when I was a young Christian, someone mentioned in a sermon one day, or in a talk that journaling was good for you. Journaling, you know, it's an old-fashioned thing where you get a book and you write with a pen thoughts for the day that you learn about God, right? And, he, and, th- and this speaker said, oh, you know, it's very good that you get a journal and every day you write five things uh, that you want to thank God for. And I think it's a really good thing. I, I, I've been doing it. I try to do it as regularly as I can. But 
you know, I, I realize when I go back, I really thank God for God's kindness to me. Right? I really thank God for His mercy to me. I, I might thank God for a lot of things, right? Uh, thank God for my kids, or thank God for, uh, you know, good weather, thank God for car, new TV, friends, family. But do we really thank God for God's kindness? Don't we? I think for myself, I kind of take it for granted, right? But when you look at this passage, it says, you know, consider the kindness of God. Consider how the Jews have been cut off so that you have been incorporated. Consider how God has given you grace instead of hardening your heart. Consider how at the fullness of time, when the Jews come back in, you will receive the fullness of eternal life. So I hope that as we look at this passage, we will take seriously the command of God to consider the kindness of God and to journey in that kindness and mercy. And to be afraid because when we leave that kindness and we are arrogant, we will instead face the sternness of God. Okay, So let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, we realize that Romans chapter 11 is deep and profound. It speaks of things which we struggle with to understand. But yet, as we apply our minds to it with the help of your Holy Spirit, help us to see how in your plan, you have given grace to the elect, that you have saved some Jews, and that you have brought many Gentiles into the kingdom of heaven. Dear Father, this is not because we are inherently better or good or righteous or virtuous, but rather it is because of your grace and mercy. Dear Father, we pray and thank you that we are those who have received grace and mercy rather than sternness and hardening. We pray that as we consider the deep things, the deep truths that we've learned today, that we will not be arrogant and conceited, thinking that we are special and deserve forgiveness and grace, but rather that we would be afraid and tremble, knowing that if the Jews were cut off, so too we can be cut off too. And we pray that we will take seriously our journey to continue in your kindness, so that we may look forward to the fullness of eternal life with you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.